Tonight I want to talk about mindfulness as the first of the seven factors of awakening. The Buddha said, whose minds are well developed in the factors of self-awakening, who delight in non-clinging, relinquishing, grasping, resplendent, their fetters abandoned, they in the world are unbound, liberated. The seven factors of enlightenment begin with mindfulness and followed by uh, investigation, non-intellectual investigation, uh, by energy and rapture, and then by calm, concentration, equanimity. The first three of them, uh, after mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, all energize the mind, lift the mind, make it buoyant, bright, sparkling. The other three, calm, concentration, equanimity, uh, bring a tranquility to mind, soothe it. We can view the seven factors in uh, either of two ways, either as a uh, spiraling sequence uh, focused on our practice, practice of the four foundations of mindfulness, body, feelings, mind, and mental qualities. The, the spiraling, spiraling sequence builds on each other over time. That is from uh, the steady, uh, strengthened stream of mindfulness, we begin to investigate the nature of experience, the mind and body, see what's skillful or unskillful. And through that, to uh, uh, energy arises through which we channel the forces of awakening and uh, learn how to, to uh, garner the power of the skillful states and to relinquish uh, the unskillful states. And from the energy comes the, uh, the deep interest building into a rapture or joy. And then each of them follow from that. The, the, the calm mellows out, balances the rapture, the, uh, both in mind and body. The concentration gathers together the mind from being scattered. And then the equanimity, which balances all states. So in other words, and then from the equanimity comes the purest mindfulness. So it's a loop feeds back, each nurturing the other, and then when the loop completes, it takes it to another level, a more subtle level, more strengthened level. The other way we can view it is that all f seven factors develop uh, simultaneously, concurrent with our awareness of the four foundations. That is, each time we are mindful of the body, of, the, of a single breath, all of these factors are engaged uh, and strengthened and developed. The word sati in the Buddhist Pali language is what is used to describe what we call mindfulness. Translated uh, uh, various ways, awareness, attention, heedfulness, um, carefulness, uh, its true nature being noticing or observing power of mind. Literally, it is um, translated as immediate remembering, in the sense of the immediate ability to frame what's a, 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 uh, what has arisen and to see it and feel it from all directions and from within. 
the awareness of sati is a special awareness. It's applied to experience at a very special pitch. That is, it's not aware of what's already passed. That would be a thought, a reflection. It's not aware of what not has not yet arisen. That too would be anticipation, would be a form of thought, expectation. The special pitch is, is attuning to the moment, just what's occurring, just what's arising in the here and now. That's what's meant by sati. And it has both a, an active and um, a receptive component. The active being its dynamic nature that, that brings the field of experience into focus. Uh, it, uh, and it comprises alertness, uh, uh, energetic presence that leads to the investigation. Its receptive nature uh, is its quality of being open, accepting, allowing whatever arises in the moment, uh, and detached, not disconnected, but just detached, not identified, not judging. Sati is beginner's mind, called in the Zen tradition, because it's a, a pre-verbal awareness, an immediate knowing that uh, slips behind the curtain of commentary, of judgment, concepts. It's before thought in the conceptual process. It is pre-symbolic. It's not already uh, taking what's experienced and forming it into ideas, opinions, concepts. So it's empty of preformed views, opinions, or expectations. Rather, attuning to the immediate experience without the, the weight of thought the assessment of thought, the interpretation of thought. Rather, it, it discerns between what is an interpretation, because certainly thoughts come up, discerns between that interpretation or evaluation or uh, the weightiness of thought and that light, energetic, uh, pure nature of the immediacy of just seeing what is, feeling what is, knowing what is. A, um, a metaphor used in the text is of a cork in a stream, a cork in a, a stone thrown into a stream uh, that points to the capacity of sati to sink into experience. Uh, the cork, of course, will just flow along on the surface of the stream is subject to the little eddies and movements of the water, currents of the water, whereas the stone goes right to the heart of the stream and it feels its streamness, knows the streamness from its depths. That's the quality of sati, uh, having this depth and going right to the core of each moment's experience, cutting through interpretation. So as not to just see or experience things from a distance, like uh, trying to view the moon through the clouds. This depth and the constancy of keeping in view the present moment's experience is the non-distracted nature 
of sati. As it sees around an object, that is the surround of what arises, and it sees its particulars, it goes into it, it feels it from within, whatever appears. This is a, the beautiful writing of uh, an environmental elder named John Hay. He wrote some years back, the hawk's eye not only picks out its prey from great heights, it also sees into it and what surrounds it. So it is a knowing eye. The earth's particulars are in its mind. We are addicted to proving phenomena picking out single objects, facts, and images from their context so as to help us draw conclusions. To assess an entire landscape constructively means to be able to think in ecological terms, but this does not necessarily imply that we know it well enough to see into it. The hawk may be restricted to its kind of environment and its specialized means of dealing with it, but it also acts and sees in terms of its constant variance and complexities and not from the outside in. It is part of a system that must have mystery added to it in order to match the fiery phenomena of the spirit. The answers the hawk might have to what and how it sees lie in the spontaneity of the earth itself, which it follows to the end. We have a certain uh, setting of limits uh, as well. We, we surrender to the form of the four foundations of mindfulness, awareness of body and feelings, uh, consciousness, and the mental qualities that arise in consciousness. And having this form allows us to surrender into and see the nature of things, see it clearly. Allows us to develop the tools of seeing such as the seven factors of awakening. And these factors help us to, to blend with, to know from within the natural order of life as it is. It is our own moment-to-moment uh, -moment experience. Form doesn't mean that we conform to a particular view, to a, a belief system, uh, or even a prescribed way of seeing. Rather, it allows us to see as it is. Sati, this first factor of awakening, uh, allows us to attune to the mystery of things, to the spontaneity of the earth itself, to the fiery phenomena of, uh, of the spirit. We can, we can know sati as manifesting in two different ways, both in a focused, precise way and more a relaxed, uh, open, uh, even playful way. Um, my teacher, Sayada Upandita, seems, at least on the surface, mostly to embody the dedication to very focused, precise practice. Um, uh, kind of serious sati, uh, but also he's very, very caring. In the early years of my practice in Burma, I would notice how 
how deeply and precisely and caringly he would look after his books. You know, and just the way he'd reach for a book from the bookshelf and look at its cover, kind of dust it off, and very carefully open it up. It was like a, a sacred ritual. And read a passage from it or two. And so in equally caroling, caringly and precisely, you know, close it up afterwards uh, and return it to its home in the bookshelf. And the precise yet caring way he would uh, look after his, how he wore the robes, or uh, how I wore the robes for that matter, you know, and making caring, uh, caring corrections in that way. Uh, Sayadaw Upandita had that uh, hawk's eye view that anyone who came in his uh, vicinity, in his range, in his radar range, would feel looked at from all around and from within, all quite simultaneously. So that yogis often said they felt like they were waiting, um, waiting to see the dentist <laughs> because of the way that Sayadaw's mind seemed to probe right into their depths. He used to like to use this image that's outdated now, but it's, um, uh, it's still useful, perhaps. He said that being mindful is, uh, is, comes from the, from the text. Being mindful is like carrying a, a, a bowl of boiling water balanced on your head. You have to be that alert and that relaxed. And behind you is a swords person who, if you spill even a drop, will lop your head off. I like that because it was, it's so, it's so Sayada. <laughs> he himself would be able to carry that bowl of boiling oil and not spill a drop. And plus he'd be the one who would enjoy carrying the sword behind you <laughs> if you were the one carrying the boiling oil. He'd ask people who came in to see him and, and he'd just watch them. People felt so watched, you know, he said, after they sat down. He'd say, describe the experience of how you just sat down and bowed. And yet so gentle and caring. I, I saw him earlier this year. I came down from Upper Burma and was visiting him in his monastery. And he took me for a walk. He said, I want to show you something. And we went to a tree right at the uh, entry to the monastery. And uh, kind of he had me peek up into the tree where there was a, a nest with a nesting dove and her young, feeding the young. We just stood there for like 10 minutes. He wanted me to notice everything about it, you know, how the nest was made, and the caring of the mother, mostly nonverbal, but it was this shared experience that was so uh, touching with his energy of compassion. Focused and precise, the quality of presence. The other manifestation is that more relaxed or, or playful. Uh, and another uh, elder mentor in my life really embodied that. Uh, his name was Paul Reps. Uh, he lived with Michelle and I and our eight-year-old daughter at the time about 15 years ago for a while. Uh, and he... Paul Reps was a kind of self-styled, iconoclastic Zen master who had spent years in Asia from, uh, from his teenage years. This was like in the 
from 1915, when he first went to Burma, India, and lived for a while in Japan. He used to survive, he said, through his calligraphy, his sumi uh, black ink brush paintings. And he, he'd uh, be on the streets of Kyoto and uh, clothespin his uh, calligraphies and, uh, and, and hang them between two trees. And then he'd have a fan that he ran a cord from a nearby shop and the fan would be blowing on these calligraphies with a sign on top that said, Living Art. <laughs> and then beneath one calligraphy he said, For rich people, a hundred dollars. And then the other one, For students or poor people, free. <laughs> so this is the character of Reps when he showed up to live with us with a, no more than a small day pack of his belongings in a folding aluminum uh, lawn chair or beach chair. And uh, he would sometimes go to the market across the street and uh, come back. He had to cross uh, the, the highway, Kalaniani Ole Highway, which was a task just for him to say, yet alone to cross it. And he'd come back from one of his ventures to the market and, and talk about crossing the dangerous highway and say, today I saved my own life. <laughs> And then once he went to uh, a new supermarket in the area, and uh, he was staying with some friends, and he went to the supermarket across from where they lived, and had it just installed, this was a long time ago, so he had just installed one of those talking machines, you know, when you put your fruit on the thing and it says how much it weighs and how much it is. And he was confounded, he came back, you know, remarking on the machines that talk. And so he spent the whole night figuring out how to outwit the machine. <laughs> so the next day he went and went through the line with one grape. <laughs> the machine didn't talk. <laughs> Reps was one of those who knew how to, to uh, ride the crest of the continuous wave of uh, experience rising and passing. And I, my favorite story I tell again and again is that uh, while he lived with us, he, he um, attended our, their sittings uh, twice a week, but he'd only sit for 30 minutes. He felt anything longer was uh, useless. So he'd sit near the kitchen door so he could walk through the kitchen to his studio on the other side on his folding lawn chair. He's 87 at the time. Uh, so it, you, you get up, and he'd been practicing mindfulness you know, since like 1915. So, but he's 87, and he's mindful. So one day he gets up and he starts to fall. Now, when you're 87 and mindful, you s fall slowly. <laughs> so he started to fall because he caught his foot on a low coffee table. And he used the folding chair to catch his fall. But the folding chair was folding, kept folding. So he swung around in a beautiful little pirouette and, and hit the swinging kitchen door, which of course swings. So he's swinging through the kitchen door and trailing after him is his, uh, is his aluminum folding lawn chair. 
and that hits some of the hanging pots and pans by our sink and knocks over the, the dish strainer with all the silverware. But he keeps spinning around and he keeps falling. <laughs> and unbeknownst to all of us, Chandra was in there with her other eight-year-old friend sneaking a, a, a cookies and juice party. And he fell right in the midst of them. And the moment of impact, we all heard, all of us sitting out there, oh my gosh, I've fallen into a party. <laughs> But he too, you know, had the other, his other side. He could be intimidating, just like Sayadaw. People would come and visit, and uh, before we even had the chance to introduce him, he'd just look at them, stand back, and kind of uh, frown and say, have you been standing like that all your life? <laughs> Did you know that you were depressed? <laughs> Let me show you something. And he'd say, follow me. And he'd lift up his arms, and he'd step on his uh, uh, toes, bring his arms down, pull his shoulders back, and do all these exercises with, before even knowing this person. And then he'd say, take a deep breath. And after they did that exercise, they took a nice deep breath. And he'd say, that's your first breath that you've ever breathed. And he says, now you won't be depressed anymore. You know, and then he'd introduce himself. I'm Reps. He called himself Reps. And that, by that way, you know, people got uh, both curious and uh, desirous of seeing him, but terrified of seeing him. Each time they'd come before he gave a little talk or something, he'd try to sneak in the back way and, and avoid him. But he'd always pick them out, you know, and check out their posture. <laughs> <laughs> the elements of the nature of the mind and body are brought to light in this present moment with this quality of awareness, this balance of being both focused and precise as well as, as uh, relaxed, open, even playful, gentle, generous. There's two kinds of discerning wisdom in the mindfulness process. The first is the ability to bring the mind face-to-face uh, and noticing what's occurring in this moment. The quality of bringing the mind face to face with whatever's happening, even if it's painful, even if uh, there's fear there. It's this element in the heart of mindfulness that's unafraid even of fear. Because the love of the truth the desire to see things and know things as they are is stronger in that moment than the truth. I, I have, a, I have a, this young man, seven years old, who lives nearby. We're best friends. Uh, and his mother was telling me the other night about uh, his, his, uh, his soccer playing. This his newfound sport. He's become really good at it. And he had a game the other day and he was playing against someone his own age, but twice the size. In fact, he was twice the size of most of the other seven-year-olds. And little Nady was uh, running circles around him, and all over, and kicking the ball out from under his feet and out behind him, and just running all around him. 
Uh, and then after the after the game, they were the parents were talking to all the children, and uh, and some of the children were saying how they were afraid of this big boy. And his mom, Nadie's mom, said, "Well, you know, weren't weren't you afraid of him?" And he said, "Yes, I was afraid of him too, but I love soccer so much that I just I just kept playing anyway." And then another part of the story that's humorous is that uh, they were the little the goalie was there, this, the young girl who was the goalie, and she kept saying, "You know, Nady, you're so good." such a good player. And Nady's mom said to her, well, you're really good too. You blocked all these, uh, you know, uh, the balls from going through the goal. You're a great goalie. And, you know, everyone is doing their part. It's good. But the girl, little girl, looked right at Nady and said, no, you know, you're really good. And Nady looked back at her and said, I know. <laughs> Healthy self-pride. So this first kind of discerning wisdom in the mindfulness process, bringing the mind face to face and noticing what's occurring. The labeling helps uh, in this process. It helps direct the mind to the object or to the experience and also to inspire uh, the constancy of awareness the, to follow. Uh, and then at times the labeling is just dropped, either automatically or intentionally. Uh, either when the sati becomes strong and it's fully engaged, part of the stream of practice, or when a lot of phenomena seems to be happening at once. The sensations in the body, a whole field of sensations and sounds, uh, thoughts, feelings, just seems to be a whole stream of experience happening. And then to try to label can be fatiguing. So we can just let go of the labeling and, and, and flow with what's happening. Labeling again when, you, when we find that we, it's useful. When we're tired, uh, we feel disconnected from the experience, or we need energy, we're gonna up the energy a little bit, the labeling can help. Or when we're faced with the internal dragons of the mind, uh, those mind states that don't seem to go away, that are really strongly implanted, uh, and through which we are viewing our mind-body experience. When we can label, when we can name the internal dragons, it helps to de detach from them, helps to step back, and again to frame it in mindfulness and just see it as fear, resistance, aversion, terror, attachment, whatever it is. When we're face to face, we can feel the body as body. That is, feel the body just as it is, and from within the body. First, perhaps feeling the contours and the outline, uh, the general sense of sitting, the overall awareness. And then we can begin to feel points of sensation within the body, the particular uh, elements of experience, fire, water, earth, air, those sensations, textures of hardness, softness, vibration, movement, heat and coolness, flow of energy, patches of pressure, and so forth. Just as it is, we know it. And then staying face to face, we begin to sense 
and experience the interrelated field of sensate patterns and the awareness of them. You start to see their interconnectedness. The same with feelings that arise. In that foundation, we can experience pleasant, unpleasant feelings without getting into the content on a nonverbal level, just allowing them to be pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, knowing the tone, knowing the texture, but not needing to resist it, not needing to make it anything other than it is. Feel, know the resistance when it's there, and then allow it to go. And then to get in and to see the nature of feelings. They teach us about the nature of experience. Feelings are in constant flow, and constantly appearing, disappearing again, each moment. We see also how awareness arises in that moment, to know the feeling from within the feelings. Feelings felt from within the feelings and known. We see this whole pattern of mind and body experience. The ability to bring the mind face to face, that noticing quality of mind. The second kind of discerning wisdom in mindfulness process is the natural free flow presence of mind. This is creative natural mind. When, when sati is fully engaged with our moment to moment experience, whatever objects are appearing, body, feelings, mind, mental qualities. Sati has, with a free-flowing natural state of mind, has provided now a kind of protective shield from any heavy hindrance intrusions. The mind-heart begins to feel more like a lotus leaf, where it becomes so smooth that it's difficult for the hindrances to stick. They, they slide off more. This free flow, free flow presence uh, is a mind-heart that's soft, pliant, supple. At these moments, we enter a stage of purity of consciousness, purity of mind, even if only a few moments. And things are known naturally and effortlessly, just as they are, as they arise, persist for a moment, and vanish. There's a subtle difference between the noticing mind that comes face to face with our experience and the knowing mind. The noticing mind is that which touches and brings into focus our experience, frames it. The knowing mind is what opens from within it opens to the object or penetrates into the depth of the object, like the stone into the stream. For example, when we're, when we're walking, the noticing mind directs awareness to the disposition of our body, to uh, the legs in the standing position. There's a certainty that we're about to lift. We may even feel that impulse of intention that ignites the air and earth elements, which is the experience of lifting. But it's not certain what the sensations will be. There's no idea. 
What the yogi encounters in the next moment is always a mystery. The free-flowing natural mind is there to experience that mystery, that reality, what happens. So we allow the noticing mind to direct awareness to the object. Feel the sensations, stiffness, tension, potness. And the free-flow awareness arises from within, experiences with wisdom, knows what's happening, feels the quality, feels the nature. You can move from the awareness of the whole leg to the particulars with the right aim and accuracy of noticing mind. That is, we, we feel first and sense the general form, and then we go to the elemental particulars, points of sensation, tightness, uh, pinpricks, vibration, and so forth. And then it can spread to see and know the interrelated field of knowing and uh, uh, sensation. And then see the beginning of insight, where we see all these sensations and the knowing mind arise and disappear in that moment. The natural free flow presence of mind experiences things always both different and as if known for the first time, beginner's mind. Suzuki Roshi said, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities. In the experts there are few. There's two levels of being with our experience with mindfulness. Participating awareness and observing awareness. In the participating awareness, there's a, a, a direct connection, that immediacy of connectedness, being one with the experience. While the observing awareness is detached, not identified, without an agenda, without anticipating what's happening next. But each moment when we're with a breath, we feel a oneness with a breath. Uh, but the awareness of no one breathing, that the breathing is just happening of itself. The sensations of breathing and the awareness of it. Or the, the oneness of sound, when that uh, free-flow awareness connects with sound vibration, yet no one hearing, just the vibration of sound and the awareness of it, moment to moment, changing timbers, changing tones, each moment a different awareness, each moment a different knowing, appearing, disappearing. Or the oneness that one experiences with walking, and yet the sense of no one who's walking. Sometimes people report, it just feels like it's a stranger walking, or the walking is just happening on its own. Sensations, the elemental nature of walking sensations, and the awareness of it.
I learned a lot about uh, awareness before I started practice from the way I, from where and the way I grew up. I was uh, born in a culture that uh, participated with the ocean uh, as sacred wilderness. Uh, a lot of the, of what I learned from the ocean, from what I learned from the sea, helped prepare for when I began uh, a spiritual journey in my teens. The ancient Hawaiian culture uh, loved the sea um, and among other things, surfing in particular was a metaphor for living. The, the salt water of the oceans uh, for Hawaiian culture is like the blood that unites a single family. And they didn't separate, couldn't separate really uh, ocean from land, from the, what they grew on the land, from themselves. It was all quite an interrelated uh, process. The art of surfing reflects the nature of mind in many ways, the nature of being in many ways. Surfing is, the, uh, is more about the entire process of relation or interrelation with the sea. Uh, not just catching the wave, not just wave riding itself. There's a profound intimacy between the wilderness of ocean and oneself. I learned, first I learned a lot about patience because sometimes we'd be sitting out there and be no waves for a long time. I mean, couldn't predict that. You can't make the waves happen. The ocean has its own nature, and they send waves when the conditions are there for the waves to come. So it was a lot about just sitting there on the surfboard in the ocean, feeling the coolness of the sea beneath and, and the heat of the sun on top, and sometimes just floating, floating in the ocean, feeling carried by the ocean, all the sensations that... Uh, this kind of watery awareness that cover, envelop, embrace the body. But after a while that patience paid off because there was a real inner joy, celebration, even rapture. When on the horizon a set came, a set of waves. You could see the bump coming from quite some way out on the ocean horizon. Seen the approaching wave involves many ways of seeing. You know, you, sometimes you just can see right away, even from a distance, that that wasn't a wave that you either could catch or would want to catch. Because you have to look into the wave in many ways, where you have first the overview, get a sense of the wave as a swell on the ocean, and then the particulars. You start looking at how it's pitching. You know, how it's forming up, and its length, its size, uh, its potential, and, and how, it's, how it continues to form as it comes up on the ocean bottom and starts to take shape. And then there's being in the right spot. If you're not in the right spot, you have to paddle quickly and get in the right spot. 
And then you have to see the spot on the wave where you really want to get to be in the heart of the wave, to be in the best place in the wave, to be, with, to be one with that wave. And all those conditions get together, then there's the energy that's expended you know, in paddling. Sometimes a, a strong, powerful burst of energy to paddle quickly, fast, and hard, depending on the size of the wave. And sometimes just one or two paddles. If, you're, if it's a big wave and you're way in front of it, uh, if you paddle too much, you'll be swallowed by the wave. But just one or two. And then just to feel with your body the lift of the wave on your body, on your board. And then standing up at the right time, and having a sense of the time and the feel to begin blending with the wave. Getting the wave. Uh, moving down the face of it and turning off the bottom, coming back up to its crest uh, and tucking in to the curl, the pocket of the wave as it begins to form a tube. In all these cases, the mind just lets go of any anticipation. There's no thought about the next maneuver. But rather this participation, this union with the wave, at, at the same time that observing awareness there's a certain amount of detachment and, and balance. You know, otherwise, you start kind of trying to do the wave instead of be the wave. So this blending, becoming one with the wave, and, and the, uh, the balance that comes with it. And the feeling each time, the unique nature. There's no two waves alike. Each wave is completely different and unique. It's a mystery. You don't know how you're going to ride it until you're on it. And then it unfolds, it develops. You ride with, with the same quality of mindfulness and awareness of coming face to face. In big waves, there's lots of fear that's there. But the love of doing it is stronger than the fear. So you work with the fear, transform the energy of it, and get into it. And the discernment, determining uh, what to do each moment of this wave, depending on how it breaks direction to go, how to flow with it, that uh, discernment that's uh, uh, like a non-intellectual investigation. And the energy it takes to channel yourself one way or the other, uh, or to, to hold up, pull back a bit, or to go fast uh, for speed to make it through, you know, a, a section of wave that's crashing in a tube. Uh, the, the rapture that comes from it indescribable. As they say, only a surfer knows the feeling. And yet also the calm, the kind of serenity that you can have right in the middle, sometimes of the largest waves breaking over you, that could pummel you, that could uh, snuff life out of you. This ability at times to feel right in it and completely serene in mind and body the art, the grace, the magic of the surfer and with his or her wave. And the focus of mind, totally focused on where one is, where one is going. And the, uh, the balance of equanimity to stay on the wave or to deal with what happens if you're swallowed by the wave. All seven factors are there in that, uh, in that experience. 
it's not, it's a metaphor because it's not unlike each moment's wave of experience. It crests, it crashes, uh, we can be there for it or not, depending on the conditions, the quality of presence, of awareness. And if, if not, if we wipe out, we can just wait. There's always another wave. It'll come again. The very next moment, in fact. We just start to learn to pick up on each moment's experience in this way and riding the crest of each moment's experience with this kind of balance and skills, artfulness, the mastery that comes. This is how we practice being in the moment. This is the first uh, sambojanga, the first factor of awakening, mindfulness. There is a, one last short piece. We had uh, Nady's older brother. He's, uh, he turned 18 and he spent the summer with us um, before going off for his uh, first year of experience after high school. He's taking a year off before he goes to college to work in Ladakh on a farm project to help the Ladakhan people. So at first he spent the summer with us and uh, I, he started to learn to surf a couple years ago when he, he visited, his family visited us and then a little bit more last year. And this year he was there alone. We went out a few times together. And then uh, one day he came home from work and Michelle and I weren't there and he went out surfing. And there's a time in a surfer's life uh, when you catch your first wave, if you catch your first real wave. And then every, all the conditions come perfect. You just have done it enough, you've gone through the aches and pains, the timing starts to come together, and the muscles in the body, and, and the uh, uh, awareness, patience, all that. So he was, he couldn't wait to tell us, and we got home, and he was in a rep's room, <laughs> 15 years later, sitting on his Zafu. But he seemed to be a few inches off the Zafu. <laughs> we could almost feel him wanting to get off, get up as soon as we got home. So we said, Jake, you know, how was your day? And he said, great. And he's smiling, a big smile. He says, did you go surfing? He says, yes, I went surfing. I said, all right, <laughs> what happened? And he said, I got a wave. And I knew just what he was talking about. You know, he described in intimate detail everything about the wave, seeing it come, catching it, getting up on it, just the right spot, going down the face, making the right turn, getting tucked in, being in the tube, riding a long, beautiful, uh, sacred barrel. You know, and the feeling that he had at the end of it, and the right pull out, he said, <laughs> he said, I'll never forget that wave. <laughs> And I said, I know. <laughs> so then he went, and, uh, <laughs> he went and changed his driver's license from a Massachusetts license to a Hawaii license <laughs> and said, I live in Hawaii now. <laughs> He'll never be the same. Let's sit for a moment.
whose minds are well developed in the factors of self-awakening, who delight in non-clinging, relinquishing grasping, resplendent, their fetters abandoned. They in the world are unbound, liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.